you would please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. On April 13, 1912, an East Coast big city newspaper headline read, Titanic sinks, 1,500 die. On April 13, 1945, a West Coast big city newspaper headline read, FDR dies. On September 12, 2001, the New York Times headline simply read, America attacked. 1 Samuel 25.1 begins with these words. Now Samuel died. Life-changing, momentous events are usually announced in public print with just the bare facts. The most important leader in Israel since Joshua is gone. To be with his Lord. Samuel was called and appointed by God as a boy to lead Israel through decisive transitions from spirit-empowered judges to royal dynasties. He was the last of the judges, a prophet, and a priest. The Lord gave Samuel the job of anointing, protecting, and preparing David whose reign as king will point to the reign of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, and whose throne will be that of Christ the King. Is there anything we should notice here about the timing of Samuel's death? Yes, notice that the Lord did not call Samuel home until until Saul had publicly acknowledged acknowledged David's right to rule in his place. That's a big deal. In chapter 24, verse 20, Saul declares, and he's saying this out loud in front of a whole bunch of people, I know that you, David, shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Then we learn that Samuel has died. In the rest of verse 1, we learn, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. You know, you might be wondering, I certainly was, I still am, I'm wondering, was David part of this assembly? We don't really know, we can't tell from the grammar, but if so, what an incredible risk. And if not, it would reflect the fact that David is even more exposed to Saul with Samuel gone. The rest of the nation, in general, must have recognized Samuel's long and faithful service to the Lord and them. It sounds like almost everybody was there. You ever been to a funeral like that? Marty and I were at one yesterday. The dear friend and 
Buena Vista, Colorado. Yeah, Coloradoans can butcher the language as well as we can. Um, we knew her when we were in Colorado. The church was twice as big as this uh, area. Held 350 people and every seat was taken. It was a glorious time. The whole nation assembled and mourned for Samuel. What a life to get called by God as a boy, not having a clue in how God used him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then we see the scene abruptly change. In verses 2 through 17, David and Nabal. This amazing story begins by giving us the setting and some interesting facts about the main characters. And, you know, people that are good at literature shouldn't be the only ones that notice some of the way that this story is given to us. So pay attention, and I'll try to, to bring some of these facts out. But little things are important. After fleeing way to the south in the wilderness of Paran, which actually is in the Sinai Peninsula, the northwestern part, that's way, way south. We don't know why David went down there. It doesn't look like he was with his army. He went down there to be by himself, to work some things out. That happens often in Scripture. It also happens with us, doesn't it? A trip away to the wilderness. But after fleeing way to the south there, David then goes back to the wilderness areas west of the Dead Sea to rejoin his 600 men. In verses 2 and 3, we are introduced to a very rich man who had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and there was some sheep shearing going on in Carmel. The man's name is Nabal, and notice that the first thing we find out about him is how rich he is before we even find out his name. But he's described as harsh and badly behaved. Other translations say harsh and evil. Or I kind of like this one, surly and mean. We don't hear those words too much anymore, surly. All accurate descriptions. His servant and his enemy... And his wife all describe him the same way. That is telling. How? Well, in verse 21, later in the chapter, Nabal is a worthless man that no one can speak to. That tells you a lot. His enemy describes him in verse 21. Nabal has returned evil for good. And in verse 25, his wife describes him, This worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. His name means fool. 
he lived up to it. His wife's name is Abigail. And she is described here at the beginning of this chapter as discerning and beautiful. Quite an extreme contrast. We'll see in the rest of this chapter how very special she is. In fact, you know, this book started out with another incredible female named Hannah. And here we are again in 1 Samuel, and we meet another one. In verses 4 through 11, we see the intersection of Nabal and his men with David and his men. And this story is unfolding bit by bit, piece by piece. It moves fast, but there's still quite a bit of description here. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'll read verse 1 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 17. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he, Nabal, railed at them. 
Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. And they were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One incredible story after another. If you know how this chapter ends and what happens next... Just hang in there. That's next week. First, we must cover the first 17 verses in a way that sets it up so that we really understand how great our God is. And we see that when he acts, we understand that he is sovereign, he is mighty, he is powerful, he is wise, and he is faithful. David's responsibility was to support 600 men in this wilderness area. And that meant that he must depend on the surrounding populace for food and provisions. And that would be quite a challenge in this particular area where there were really only two towns of any note, Maon and Carmel. The simple fact of all this was that David's service to the Lord required support from God's people. Now this also meant that he must ensure his men's good behavior, which if you know any history at all, know that armies often decimate the country they are occupying because of these very reasons. David must also live in peace with these people. They are his people. Quite a challenge. We find out in our text what? We find out that David's men had indeed been not just good neighbors, very good neighbors. They never plundered any of Nabal's flocks, as tempting as that would be. And they voluntarily protected Nabal's flocks and men. Now that may be hard for us to understand in a day that I'm sure we would all agree is full of law and order. They were out in the middle of nowhere. And we know what kind of people tend to hide out in areas out in the middle of nowhere. And his men provided protection for these men of Nabal's. And keeping their flocks safe. And nobody would, was going to mess with them. It was like a sign out there that said, don't mess with Texas. It's the same kind of thing. Don't mess with these people. They knew that David and his 600 men were there. So nobody is going to fool with these guys at all. In that kind of wilderness setting then, it would be normal without that kind of protection for certain amount of loss to be anticipated. So David and his men actually kept these flocks from any loss so that Nabal's gain was increased. 
In effect, then, David's presence there was what? It was a blessing to those people in that area. And as we learn in verses 15 and 16, one of Nabal's own servants backed up David's story and his entreaty to Nabal that we see in verse 7 and 8. In verses 15 and 16, this servant says, David's men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. So we must clearly see the real state of affairs in order to understand how bizarre Nabal's response to David is. David's not begging. There are good reasons. And we see all these answers right here in our text to the questions that we may have about this scenario. After hearing about Nabal's Nabal beginning to shear the huge number of sheep in his flock, David humbly asked for aid and provisions from Nabal's abundance. And he does so in a very gracious and respectful way. After all, Nabal is not a Philistine. He is not a Canaanite. Nabal is a fellow Israelite. He says he's a Calebite. I seem to remember a hero of the Old Testament named Caleb. And yet, and yet, but Nabal didn't just say no. This is an Old Testament version of in your face and let me rub it in. He railed, that's a great word, he railed at David's men in verses 10 and 11. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I, notice the the words here that refer, when he was referring to himself. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? And give it to men who come from I do not know where. Did you get that? It's pretty, pretty strong. In effect, as one commentator writes, Nabal called David a no-account runaway slave and his men a bunch of nobodies who had no right to Nabal's bread, water, meat, etc., In verses 12 and 13, things begin to go south very, very quickly. David's men come back and report what Nabal's response was to this request. Quite a surprise for everyone, not expected at all, which by these statements you can tell that in that time and culture, very similar, we can think of scenarios in our world where we would see very similar circumstances the polite cultural right thing to do would be to provide for him 
He was rich. And it wasn't saying, get rich, you don't need it, let's share it all. It was like you have an abundance, and just by our presence, we saved you the loss of many sheep, many goats. Can you please help us? Quite a surprise. Now, one of the main characteristics of a fool is not listening to anything or anyone besides themselves. Let that sink in because we see this throughout the Bible. A main characteristic of a fool is not listening to anything or anyone besides themselves. In fact, if we take this and look at the New Testament in areas that may be uh, needing confrontation and coming alongside and maybe finally discipline, what we see consistently is that discipline takes place when the person involved, is, there's witnesses and it's very obvious what's going on and they are confronted about it in God's way, et cetera, et cetera, if they do not listen. And you will read that over and over. If they do not listen, then you take this next step. If they do not listen, then you take this next step. So a question that we should all be trembling to ask ourselves is, do we listen? Yeah, you may be right sometimes. That's not the point. The point is, are you willing to listen? In fact, ignorance is not really as much a factor of being a fool as the inability to realize their own precarious position and then obstinately refusing to, to consider it. Fools display then a destructive self-centeredness and can't bear to have anyone over them so they ignore God or deny that he exists. That raises a whole bunch of other questions. Do you chafe at anybody being over you in authority, whatever part of life you're talking about? It's dangerous if you do. As we've already noted, Nabal's name actually means fool. And his appetite for money and property and wealth was insatiable. Being vicious, then, which he obviously is described as being, was really just the fruit of his own self-centered existence. Did you catch that? That's just the fruit. It's the picture of going, here's my heart, and it's not pretty, and I don't care. And it meant that this man then was totally governed by or totally enslaved by his desire for more and more wealth, which he would go after in any way possible. In other words, his life was determined by his property. So he lived to defend that property. And as a fool, he would never listen to anybody who was perceived to put any of his wealth or property in peril, which is what David's men came and asked him to do. Put this much in peril, take it away, it hit the idol of his heart, and he turned vicious. 
So David and his men and his humble request were derided, they were ignored, and ridiculed. But this gets worse. Then we see David's immediate response, and it is intense, and it is furious in verse 13. And it can be summed up by the word that is used three times in that verse. Sword. That tells us everything we need to know. We read, and David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Can you see the fury in these words? And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained. Now, our first reaction is to think that Nabal is the, is the one with the incredible problem, right? First, come on, everybody in here. Oh, man, Nabal's in big trouble. Well, you're right. But that's not the main problem that God wants us to see. Not at all. The real problem that God wants us to see is David's problem. What do I mean? Now, one of the, the great things, the precious things, the treasure that is going through Scripture constantly is you can't skip parts of it. And in chapter 24, we see David responding in exactly the opposite way that he did right here. And that's what we're getting to today. We can change from trusting God from being faithful, from singing his glory one second to the next second, turning our back on him by being vicious, vengeful, and wanting our own way. And this is one of the best examples in the Bible of that. Now, there's tons of examples. But again, God knows that he uses his word to show us what? Truth about him and about our own hearts. So he is not sugarcoating King David. We find out what most of us would say is way too many weaknesses and foibles as we go through David's life. God lays it all out because you and I, our lives are laid out before God. Nothing's a surprise to him. And he lays this out for us so that we can see something really important about the danger to our own hearts and about how faithful God is despite ourselves. And that's why this chapter is so amazing. Last chapter, David saw clearly what he must not do when God's providence brought Saul into the very cave that David and his men were hiding in. David saw very clearly what he should not do, which was what? Kill him right there. The man's trying to kill him. He devoted his whole life to chasing him and getting rid of him. He's a threat to him, his throne, even though he knows that he has been chosen by God to the next king. Saul is intent on murdering him. And David let him live. And remember how in chapter 24 he had to stand before his 600 men and argue the point that Saul was still God's anointed? 
And that we don't touch him, that God will deal with him in his own, that vengeance is not mine, but it is the Lord's. And we were going, hallelujah, what a hero. Be like David. Okay, this is not the chapter here. In chapter 25, you go home and you tell your child, now be like David here. Put on your sword. Go get your own vengeance. Take off. Because here we see exactly the opposite. Scripture is so wonderful. There's nothing hidden. He reveals our hearts in order to show us how great and faithful he is and how he's provided for our true needs. But now, see, in chapter 25, David does not see what he must do. He is blinded by Nabal's insult and furious in his desire to exact swift and sure revenge. And believe me, it was coming. We can tell this from the rest of the chapter. Would you want to be in the path of David and 400 of his best guys? Uh, I think not. Will David charge ahead? Completely oblivious to the fact that he is now doing exactly what Saul did in the annihilation of the priests at Nob and the whole town? Anybody relate to this? We judge somebody for being obviously vicious and vengeful, and then we turn around and do exactly the same thing. It may start in the whispers, but it takes root in our hearts, and it changes our attitudes, and our life is threatened by it. Our hearts are threatened by it. Yes, David's cause is more righteous than Saul's cause. But what's about to happen sure looks similar to what Saul did. David has not made the connection between the desire for vengeance of Saul and now his own desire for vengeance. I don't know what you call this in your family or circles. We can say, you know, we just didn't make the connection or the dots weren't connected. How could we miss this? And this should be a big part of all of our prayers before the throne of grace. Oh, God, connect the dots. Help me see my own blindness. What am I not seeing? I know it must be something. That's usually when you've gone through some stuff enough to know. There, I'm missing something. Something's wrong. My heart shouldn't be like this. It's enslaved to this flaming passion to do this or that. David doesn't see the warning signs of taking things into his own hands. He will essentially act as if he is master of his own fate instead of letting his future be guided by the Lord. Now, there's something else we should say right here. We use how God made us so often as an excuse for sinning, don't we? And if you're an action person, this is something that you need to know. It is possibly the worst thing to act so quickly that you don't get the connections between what you're about to do and what you did right, right before this. If you're the slow variety and it takes you a year to do what that action person does in a couple of days, then your threats 
are similar, but they come out different. If you let it stew so long that by the time you do erupt, Mount Vesuvius looks like a firecracker going off, the damage that you're going to show is like a wasteland that's actually been planned for because you haven't recognized that it's been building up inside. Okay, That's what God's throne of grace is for, is to deal with this. And we'll see how God works here. If David does follow through, taking matter into his own hands, because he doesn't see the warning signs, even when he saw the signs of the danger in that cave, when Saul was there by himself, then David will essentially act as if he is the master of his own fate. How dangerous is that for the man who God anointed to be the next king of Israel? This is such a key moment in David's preparation for being a reigning king. And he doesn't have a clue right now. Will he do that instead of letting his future being guided by the Lord? Will we see the Lord rescue his chosen servant from his own, and I'm going to say this like it is, from his own stupidity and foolishness? Because that's what it is. Will the Lord restrain David somehow from executing his sinful driven purpose? These are the questions answered in the last half of chapter 25 in a way that if you didn't know the story, you'd be going, I can't believe this. Honey, honey, come here. Read this. Have you ever read this? Look at this. This is unbelievable. And the women are smiling for a reason. Because in this case, not always, but in this case, God uses a daughter of his to do what nobody else could do. And it was by God's power through her words and actions that he works. But it's God working. Will the Lord restrain David from executing this sinful purpose? These are the questions and the lessons for us center around knowing God better and better, and many times by finding out again just how prone to wander into foolishness we all really are. And there's nothing worse than a group of people, especially a church, that wear the faces and put on this act where everybody supposedly lives this certain way when everybody knows that nobody's really like that. The other, on the other hand, learning to live in light of God's word means that it frees you up to be truthful about your own heart so that you can deal with other people's hearts who are sinful like yours. That's the key. So you open your life up more and more and more, and that's hard for a lot of people because you want to gain that trust first and you want to have this proven and that proven 
And that's a process. It doesn't just happen like that. But you know the way you start? By being so secure in who you are as a child of God in Christ yourself, knowing what he has done in your life, that you first are willing to do that with other people. And then it happens more and more that people trust you, so they tell something or they ask for a prayer request, and you follow through, and what happens? The love for each other grows, grows, and grows, and you walk through life together. One of the things about this funeral yesterday that's not quite exactly one-to-one correspondence to this scenario was that after this couple left the camp that we were working at for similar type reasons and ended up replanting in, in a beautiful, I can't say it, sorry, Buena Vista, no, it's, it, they say Buena Vista. They, were plant, they planted themselves in a church and carried out finding job, working faithfully, years, years, years. And a year and a half ago, um, our friend found out she had serious cancer. Talked about it with her husband. And this group of people that they have come to share, serve, love, they stood up in a meeting one night in the appropriate time and shared what was going on so that their church could walk with them through. It's tough. Tough on everybody. But that's a privilege that we have as God's people to share the joys and the sorrows and learn to, to find out how faithful God is as we lean on him and one another as we walk through those things. Now, that's one of the things, the lessons that we see come out in, a, in another way. But do we, will we learn through this chapter how faithful God is? And knowing this ahead of time, will it make us stop? Will it, will it make action people just stop maybe and pray? You know, we always say if, if the Lord says jump, you just say how high and do it. Well, there are times like that. But I, I get very weary when I'm tempted and when I see other people tempted, especially in Christian organizations and churches, when there's some decision that may seem small at the time, and nobody's praying about it. There's something wrong with that. We need to be on our knees together before him. And it, you notice David's immediate reaction was, men, take up your swords. So all the he-men in the group that want to follow some of the malarkey that's in our culture now about a, what a true man is, yeah, let's go get them. They insulted me, you know, and it puffed up and take off instead of praying first in that setting, looking to the Lord first in that setting and seeing. Somebody would have probably asked the question, David, David, I know this is out of line and you're pretty upset, and yet it was a big insult, but, I mean, in the cave... We wanted to go kill Saul, and you said no, and, and that vengeance is God's, and you know that's his job, and now this guy gives us an insult, and he's, he's a fool, he's nobody, and now you want to go wipe him out and his whole family and every servant he has, which is what David's intentions were. 
Which is why the servant went back and found his wife and told her. So the servant in this story becomes one of the heroes as well, as far as faithful goes. Even though, you know, people go, nah, he went and ratted on him and didn't, wasn't respectful to that. None of that's true, as we'll see when we get there. But we need to learn how to think through these things. Chapter 25 is a long narrative, but already we should notice that the author, the author writes it in an interesting way. It, it is a narrative, but he offers very little explanation about anything. It comes through the speeches of the people in this, in this scenario. We hear the story mainly through speeches and statements made by the various people. David has four speeches in here. Uh, verses 6 through 8, verse 13, verses 21 and 22, and then in 32 and 30 through 35, and then verse 39. So he, he basically has four speeches or statements. The young servant has one very important one in verses 14 through 17. But the key, the key to this chapter happens in next week's text in Abigail's speech. Verses 24 through 31. Read it ahead of time. David may have four speeches and statements. Yay. David wins. But Abigail's long speech is what everything points to. Everything in this chapter points to hers. And we've been using the word providence a lot. And as we do, we must continue to remind ourselves what this word really means, what it refers to. And we did this, we've done this before earlier in this book. But here is uh, the way Dale Ralph Davis uh, describes this. And it's really, it's not, this is not something you would read in a systematic theology anywhere. It's not as tight. But listen to how he gets this point across. What is providence? How would you explain that? Let me put it this way. How would you explain it to a little kid? Listen to his. Providence means the frequently mysterious, always interesting way in which the Lord provides for his servants in their various needs. That covers it. Providence means the frequently mysterious, always interesting way in which the Lord provides for his servants in their various needs. And that's what this is about. Before we close, let's read verses 14 through 17 to see how Abigail will be brought into this exciting account, which we already read once, but let's look at it again. But one of the young men, and this is one of Nabal's young men, told Abigail, Nabal's wife. And you can hear, he is concerned for his life. He understands what's coming. He is concerned for his friend's life, his family, where he serves, everybody. And he looks around and there's nothing he can do. He's a servant. So he, who does he go to? The one person that has already been introduced to us as not just beautiful, but discerning. 
beautiful and discerning. And you notice the discerning comes first in the description. He goes to her. The only answer he sees to stop. If you love westerns, you can just see this. Some stark territory somewhere. And here comes 400 guys over the hill. And they're there. Or you see the dust. That's probably the way it is. You see the dust and you know they're coming. It means annihilation. You can't get away. Not quite that quickly, but he sees what's coming. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. We're going to find out later that that didn't surprise Abigail at all. In fact, that was the expected behavior. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this. And consider what you should do. What? What did he think she would do? We don't know. We don't know if he did. We just knew that she was known as a discerning woman who before God was his wife. So maybe there was a way. Nobody else could figure it out because he doesn't listen. Nobody can even talk to this man. Now, therefore, consider this, what you should do. Know this and consider, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. No one can speak to him. If there's a Father's Day message, which is not the normal application anywhere in here, it's, guys, no matter how you're made, you've got to learn to listen, to be able to see your own heart, and where you may be blind. And God brings his word to you. He brings his people to you, maybe to ask questions, maybe to get you to think about something you haven't thought about before. Why? Because he's trying to get you in trouble? Because he's trying to show you up? No, he's trying to save your life. Let's pray. Father, we again are amazed by your word these accounts in first samuel that open up our own hearts and situations thank you for showing us the real problems that david dealt with the way you were preparing him to be king thank you for setting us up in this story to see how you act and it would not be the way we would write it it would not be the 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 way that any of us would think you would work but you again you Frequently in mysterious ways and interesting ways, you provide for your servants in our needs. Help us recognize that. It's one thing to ask for your grace. It's another thing to recognize it when you send it and to properly evaluate it and receive it. So we ask that you would do this today. 
that we could rejoice in you as we grow in these regards, that you would free us up to run frequently to your throne of grace, to be honest about our strengths and weaknesses, to cast everything on your, on your altar, to see how Christ has paid for us, covered our sins with his blood, that we enjoy fellowship with you. We don't need to merit it. You've already brought us into relationship if we claim Christ as our Savior and Lord. Let us walk that way. Give us the patience to be in and walk through the process. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.